I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. So, here we are, the final episode of Season 1 of Life Out Loud. We started this chapter with a conversation with Stephen Canals, co-creator of Pose, and MJ Rodriguez, one of the show's stars. And we're closing this chapter with both of them securing historic Emmy nominations. Congratulations, you two. But we're also closing it with love. As I said when we first started this podcast, the story of the LGBTQ community is way more than just pain and suffering. There is joy, so much joy, and love. That's one of the reasons why I felt we should end this season with my friends Dustin Lance Black and Tom Daly. Lance won an Oscar for his screenplay, Milk, and Tom is in Tokyo to compete in his fourth Olympics in diving. Individually, they are sources of inspiration. Together, they are hashtag relationship goals. And not just because they're married with a baby, but because after all of these years, they can still make each other laugh. And they can still push each other to grow. And not just grow old because, come on, that's going to happen naturally. But I mean grow as people. They remind me of a song by my friend Ari Gold called Good Relationship. Ari passed away on Valentine's Day from cancer. And I miss him very, very much. When we dated, we used to talk about the unique challenges same-sex couples face when trying to forge the kind of relationship he was singing about. During my conversation with Tom and Lance, it felt as if they were using those lyrics as a guide. The support they offer one another, the respect, the love, so much love. Speaking of, thank you so much for listening to Season 1 of Life Out Loud. For those of you who are listening for the first time, I hope you give the earlier episodes a listen as well, because each one not only offers a different perspective of our journey, they're full of funny and unique stories. And for those of you who have been with us this entire time, first of all, thank you. And don't worry, the ABC Pride team and I, were already brainstorming ideas for season two, and that won't be too far away. Until then, enjoy Lance and Tom as they talk about the night they met, the losses that brought them closer together, and their advice on building a good relationship. So Tom, when did you first become aware of something other than straight? Oh gosh. See, I grew up for the longest time thinking that everybody liked girls and boys and that there wasn't necessarily a label on something and it wasn't until i actually went to secondary school which in the uk is about 11 years old 10 11 years old when i heard the word gay or that's so gay and it was kind of used quite flippantly but then i realized i had people in my class who had older brothers and older sisters that started using the word in a way that actually identified someone's sexuality i started to piece it together of like oh is this not what everyone feels, is it not just like, you know, because I was always proud of my three boyfriends and two girlfriends in primary school. Yeah, of course you were. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I didn't think that there was anything different or wrong with it. And it wasn't until I got older that I was like, oh, there's a name for this. And not so much now as back then, but, you know, people always want to label something. People always want to put something on it. If they don't understand something, it's easier for people to put you in a box. And I think what has happened over the last 10 years is that the queer identity is so much more than just the the letters that you 
that you see in the LGBTQ plus, it's it's much more than that. And you don't have to be one thing all the time. What about you, Dustin? Yeah, I mean, uh, I knew really early on because of where I grew up, I suppose. So, um, Which was? I, I, in San Antonio, Texas, in the military, in the Mormon faith. And by the time I was six years old, I had definitely heard the word homosexual in church. And I, and I believe even delivered by the prophet of the faith who was beamed in via satellite. And it wasn't good news. Let's just say that. They made it very, very clear that if you were this thing called a homosexual, you were going to be separated from your family for all eternity. And that was terrifying for me. At six years old, in a single parent home at that point, already feeling pretty isolated. I think it was, would have been within that year that I finally said the word or asked the question and you know, some good Mormon priesthood holders with salt and pepper hair were the first to define what gay meant. And I'll tell you, they didn't get it. They didn't know what it was. What did they say to you? Do you remember? You know, they use a lot of language like when men lie with men the way men ought to lie with women. It was that kind of thing. I love when they go there with that. <laughs> like nap time just got really complicated. It's like, are we not supposed to sleep at the same time? I know. What about sleepovers? This is all really serious. Listen, also being in the military in Texas, I was hearing all kinds of words used for what I was coming to know I was because I had crushes on boys in my school, in my neighborhood. And there's a lot of words being used, pejorative words. Um, You know it's not good news, at least where I came from. You know it's not good news. I don't think I would understand that it was all right to be who I was uh, almost until I went off to college. Is this the reason why you're so passionate about um, how Britain is handling the LGBTQ plus conversion therapy conversation? It's really just remembering that feeling I had that my life was less than worthless, that in fact the world would be better if I was gone. Um, and, you know, that there was something deeply wrong with me. The isolation, the loneliness, the thoughts of suicide at such a young age, you, you never forget that feeling. And so uh, whenever I see an opportunity or a strategy that needs to be put into effect to make it so that young people, when they realize they're falling in love with someone of the same sex, so that their, their first feeling is an absolute fear or self-loathing. I'm here to say there's nothing you need to change. Um, and it, you, you ought not attempt to change it, not only because it's, it, it's not necessary, but also because we know that the outcome of conversion therapy, the predominant outcome, is a loss of self-esteem and an increase in the number of uh, queer people who commit suicide. So of course, uh, I'm gonna fight back uh, because those are the myths, those are the lies. It's not true. If you're queer, I do not believe you go to hell. I do not believe you're separated from your family for all eternity. Or if you're Mormon, you don't go to outer darkness. I don't believe any of that. I think it's all bullshit. Um, and, and I think it's about time we get rid of it. Uh, because the only thing conversion therapy accomplishes is it kills more queer kids. Tom, you, you have a new book coming out entitled Coming Up for Air. And you say it's about life, love, and your career. Um, when you hear your husband speak of his upbringing and his passion in terms of fighting for full equality, 
how much of his influence went into writing this book and how much of this is really just you in a silo, if you can separate the two? You know, growing up, I've obviously grown up in a very different era, uh, especially in the UK. I'm going to be 27. So, you know, I have been able to grow up in a world that is slightly different to, say, 50, 60 years ago. And all of the work that people like Lance and people before Wait, him 50 60 years i'm not ago. saying you're 50 <laughs> 60 years old Jeez. but the the fact that all of the work that lots of the lots of lgbt activists have done in order to be able to create a much better world for people my age and younger and for people older than me that are now just you know exploring their sexuality um you know i'm very grateful to people that have worked hard to you know when lance fought for marriage equality in the us and you know, this book is more obviously about my diving stuff and things that I've done in my career, but then also the fact of me exploring and my sexuality and figuring out what that meant and what it meant to meet someone like Lance, who was at the forefront of that movement to fight for marriage equality and how that inspired me to want to work harder to be at the top of my game. And, you know, I went through dark periods in my life after 2012 of loss of motivation after the Olympic Games because that was all I ever saw. Then I started to have all of these thoughts about my sexuality and what was that and how did I see my future turning out? And then meeting Lance kind of, you know, shot everything into focus of you know, all of the questions that I had, all of the things that I was unsure about, it was almost like everything made sense. Elsie, I'm just going to say, I want if you could just send me that clip where he said all those sweet things about me, I just want to sort of play it at low volume <laughs> on a loop all night long. I'll burn yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it led me to the next question, which was, who hit on whom? You know, you both see so much beautiful um, aspects of each other, both physically as well as, you know, spiritually and emotionally. Who was drawn to whom first? I mean, I feel like I was definitely the, the um, aggressive. He showed situation. up. He showed up really late to a dinner that was already going very late, and I had work to do that night, so I was ready to go. And then in walks this guy with all these beautiful women with him. Uh, you know, his shirt buttoned up to the top button, uh, like a good, you know, confident Brit. And uh, I just thought, who? hell does this guy think he is all right whatever i'll finish my meal i'm leaving i mean he was super cute don't get me wrong but like i had things to do and uh it wasn't my I, fault we were late, i, I hope uh, all right i well a friend of mine who was sitting next to tom because he was across the table at this dinner uh sent me a text and said he's googling you and i thought oh i i better stick around a little longer <laughs> well, I, had, I had no well yeah i mean tom were you googling him Yes, I was Googling. I had no idea who he was. I just was like, okay, I can, I see you over there with the broad shoulders and floppy blonde hair. And then, you know, after, uh, you know, once the dinner finished and we went out to a bar afterwards, it was then, it was actually, Lance didn't actually have the courage to send, okay. to come All over right. and ask me for my number. So he sent his assistant over to get my number. What? I know. Wait, dude. His assistant was cute. Though. Okay, here, LZ, like, it's not, this is, my assistant was like a friend. I have known you a very long time. You never told me you had to send an errand boy to go get Tom's number. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to, but I, I, you know, I thought it might work. And guess what? It did. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it from you. It worked. He's, um, this, this assistant was also, is like, 
was not on the clock. We were also really good friends. He's really cool. He also is like really very good looking, straight, good looking. I, I thought, all right, well, this is an interesting little test. I'll send him over. We'll see. We'll see if the fish bites. And uh, you kept catching me looking at him, and I always kind of felt caught. When yeah. He did. So I would catch him looking, and he'd look away, and I'm like, you know, that's just not sort of straight behavior. And then finally, I got his phone number. Uh, he put it in my phone. He handed the phone back to me, and he had typed in um, a little winky face. And, and then, you know, cat was out of the bag. I don't think a single heterosexual man has ever put a winky face at the end of his phone number in another man's phone. Uh, probably not. And uh, I'm going to so. I'm going to leave out the, the rest of the story. Uh, <laughs> it worked out. You got married in 2017. You're raising a child right now. How did that conversation come about? Did you know when you wanted to start your family? Was it spontaneous? We broke all of the rules of what you were meant to do on a first date. And well, the fact is after that time when I met Lance in LA in March, he didn't come over to the UK again and I didn't see him in person until May. So when he came over, we had a few days in London and then we went down to Plymouth. So we went on a bike ride and I just came right out with it and just asked him if he ever saw himself getting married and did he want kids? And we named them. <laughs> we did. And you named them? Yeah, and Robbie Ray was born five years later. Happy birthday, dear Robbie. We not only made the decision to get married, ha have kids, but we also stuck by the name. So the name we picked was Robbie Ray Black Daly, and that's, that's what he's called. I heard plural. Raise kids. Are you planning on having more? Family is so important to the both of us, and we always said that we wanted lots of kids. But you know, for right now, after having one, one is you know definitely a handful. Um, and you know, who knows? After the Olympics, we, you know, we always that would probably be the time to do it rather than any time before. I don't think you want to be doing. Well, you know what I'm talking about, Elsie. You're a father. Like those every two to three hour wake ups and feeding. It just didn't seem like an Olympic year was the time to, to be doing that again. And, uh, and and this sort of Olympic year season has lasted two years because of COVID. So there's been a little pause yeah. in our family building. Uh, all I can say is we continue to plan. Speaking of the Olympics, um, Tom, you at age 14 became the second youngest male Olympian in Great Britain's history. The Olympics is going to be a massive challenge, but it's going to be so much fun, and I've got nothing to lose out there. Thinking back on that time period, what do you wish you would have known? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, you know, me being the 14-year-old in 2008, I thought I knew everything. I thought I was, you know, had everything under control, knew exactly what I was doing, knew everything about the world, you know, as 14-year-olds seem to think they do. So nothing's changed. Exactly. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. It's kind of weird because when you're little and you always dream of being that person up there or famous and it's, it's, it's kind of weird to start becoming that and getting recognised because it's, it's just really weird. You don't expect it to happen to you. Looking back on it, you know, in 2008, I was completely carefree. I didn't have any of that pressure or any expectation. It was all fun, all learning experiences and all things that seemed, were, were new and exciting. Um, you know, as I got older, pressure started to grow. And then obviously going through puberty, you start to have all of these realizations of who you're attracted to and who you're not attracted to. And honestly, 
I wish that I was out from the get-go. But the problem is, is that you don't necessarily know what your situation is and what you're, you know, what you're into until you actually have time to explore it. And then I was in a, a quite a difficult position growing up in the public eye, you know, figuring out what was right on so many different levels rather than what was just right for me. I had, I was thinking about all of these things I was hearing from managers and what was going to be able to help me actually continue getting sponsorship because my dad passed away and then I felt like I had the responsibility to look after my family and I didn't want to jeopardize anything for them. So it was a really difficult position that I put myself in. And when I finally came out in 2013. Hi guys. Um, so most of you are probably wondering why I'm doing this video. One thing I've never really felt that comfortable talking about are my relationships because that's what I get asked even if I'm doing sporting interviews is do you have a girlfriend who you seeing all that kind of stuff. I just remember being completely terrified about what was going to happen and what was going to happen to my family and all of these kinds of things. I'm still Tom. I still want to win an Olympic gold medal in Rio 2016 for Great Britain. I'm still motivated as motivated as ever to do that. It'd be great to have you guys on that journey too but I just wanted to make sure that I got to tell you guys. You know I feel like I built it up so much in my head that it was going to be this thing where you know jumping off a cliff moment but actually there was a parachute there waiting to catch me and I think if I had just owned who I was from the get-go I you know I could have lived my so much happier and more carefree and there was something difficult to be able to tell that to anyone that hasn't come out yet because you know it's a big deal and everyone has to do it in their own time when they feel comfortable but I wish I had done it sooner so that I could have started being truly me uh, earlier. You know in the United States there's an ongoing conversation about the openly gay male athlete in our big sports. Now, a former Wizards player is breaking sports barriers after publicly announcing that he is gay. Jason Collins is the first active player in the four major professional sports. And one of the things that, you know, is often brought up is the, the backlash. What will fans think? What will sponsors think? Will I still be able to have sponsors if I come out? Uh, what would you say to an athlete back in the States in the NBA or NFL who's contemplating coming out, but is fearful of those things that you just mentioned. Since coming out, looking back to when I was growing up, I didn't have anyone that was out in sport and playing at the top of their level, whether it was the beginning of their career or, you know, everyone that I knew in sport that had come out came out after they had retired. For example, Greg Leganus was a big idol for me in diving, but he came out after he had already retired. Now looking back on it, for people in the US or anywhere in the world that are at the height of their sport or their career or whatever it is, to be a visible queer person uh, is so valuable to young kids and to have that, you know, if they're starting to feel slightly different and, you know, starting to have these feelings and these emotions and not quite know what to do with it, to be able to see someone still be able to achieve the, the best in their sport, the best in their field, whatever it may be, I think there's something really powerful in that to not let little kids and young adults lose hope and lose their feeling of fidelity to be able to have that moment of, you know what, no matter who I am, uh, I can still achieve what I want to be able to achieve. And my sexuality, my gender identity, whatever it is, is not going to stop me from being uh, the best at what I choose to be the best at. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You're absolutely beautiful individually, and you're even more wonderful together. And I hate this phrase in describing you, but it really fits. You're a power couple. I mean, we got Oscars and Olympic medals in this house. (laughs) Where do you keep all the trophies? Do you have a trophy room? Which ones takes precedence if they are in display? Like, are the Olympic medals the first thing you see and the Oscars tucked in back? Like, what's going on in there? Well, funnily enough, I've got like a trophy cabinet and some like trophy frames with like my medals and things like that. And for the longest time, it's only actually been in the last month that um, Lance's Oscar came out of the loo because it was just in the toilet in the bathroom for the longest time, just like completely hidden out of the way. You had your Oscar in the bathroom, man? Yeah. Two things. One, that's like a bit of a tradition here on this side of the pond. Uh, So I thought, well, when in London, I should do what they do. Listen, Tom has talked a little bit about, you know, the blues on the other side of great success in his sport. I I don't know that I've ever talked about it, but I haven't talked about it often, which is, you know, after I won um, that big prize. For winning, for writing the screenplay for Milk. Yeah. And the Oscar goes to Dustin Lance Black for Milk. When I was 13 years old, my beautiful mother and my father moved me from a conservative Mormon home in San Antonio, Texas, to California, and I heard the story of Harvey Milk. And it gave me hope. It gave me the hope to live my life. It gave me the hope to one day I could live my life openly as who I am and that maybe even I could fall in love and one day get married. My life really um, took some very difficult turns. Um, and I had ended up giving my mom my Oscar the night of the Oscars. I'd put it in her lap when I came out of the press room and it stayed with her um, uh, for years until, uh, until she lost her fight with cancer. And in that time, I also lost my brother to cancer. And um, it came back to me in a box after I lost my mom. And so I had, I had some tough memories around what came after that big night on that big stage. And I had also checked out of filmmaking for years to work on marriage equality. And so I didn't feel connected to it in the same way or even to the business in the same way. And so I kind of exiled him. I didn't want to look at him. Uh, recently, I finally said, you know what? That was a beautiful moment. And I, I should put it out somewhere where and up high enough that I don't see it unless I kind of look up to, to see it. And, and I do that. And more than anything, um, he just reminds me of um, my mom, who, you know, for years, the only time I would see him is when, uh, like, some a plumber would come to her house in Virginia and demand a picture with it and post it on, you know, on Facebook and tag me. And I was like, well, there he is, <laughs> safe and sound in a plumber's hand, <laughs> you know. You know, I've I've just now started to be able to kind of look at him and and remember all those days fondly. 
10 years later. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, cancer is such a awful, awful disease. It's taken so many beautiful people from us. That fight, I must say, that, I mean, it is brutal, but it, I wasn't alone in it. You know, I mean, we can joke about how Tom and I met, but honestly, when I saw him the next night, where it was just, you know, he and I at his hotel room, what we both shared was that I had just lost my brother and he had just lost his father to cancer. And uh, I'll tell you, the, the many hours I was in that hotel room were about sharing those common experiences and realizing we weren't alone. We weren't alone in understanding both the the joy and the strange cloud that great success bring. And also we weren't alone in, you know, mourning the loss of those folks we love so much to cancer. So uh, at least I at least I had Tom and I hope he feels the same about having had me uh, in these years since. You two are so in sync. What is your advice for other same-sex couples, particularly men, um, who are contemplating making this leap from dating to engagement to marriage and starting a family? Gosh. Don't do it because society says you have to. Don't do it because your parents did. Don't do it because you think it's like you're following anybody. You know, uh, I am I am fully aware that Tom and I appear to be incredibly heteronormative, but we didn't do it because we were supposed to do it. God knows. Listen, I, I had dated plenty before I met Tom and, you know, all the butterflies and thrills of meeting someone. I, I know that those can come and go. Um, and what I think is remarkable about not just our relationship, but the ones I've seen that I find joy in, um, is that there's something about the combination that keeps renewing. You know what I mean? For Tom mm -hmm. and I, I think it's because we're so different in so many ways that I, I think I'm going to be incredibly curious about Tom till the day I die. I'm never going to quite know what he's going to do next. Uh, and we don't always agree on things. We have different interests, and I think that's important. Um, you know, I, I, I say often when I meet friends who start to date, and they introduce me to their new boyfriend and they look almost like twins. And they're like, we have so much in common. I go, oh, <laughs> you're, you're about to have the best six months. Uh, <laughs> the shade you toss is so gentle and I'm yet like, efficient. Oh my God, well, okay. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, especially in gay and lesbian relationships. Like you, there is a natural variety built into heterosexual relationships, you know, in terms of biology, also in terms of how heterosexual couples are at different places, hormonally, developmentally, throughout the course of a relationship, the, the opportunity for curiosity is built in. And with gay and lesbian folks, I think it's not always true, but it's often true that couples who are interested in different things or grew up in very different ways, um, they might have an age difference or a religious difference or a racial difference. I, I, I just think those relationships can be more fertile and, and renewing. I know for me with Tom, it's been eight years now and I still look at him and I'm just dazzled and I go, I, I don't know what the hell you're going to do next. And that's awesome. Mm. 
Like start knitting and crochet. <laughs> yeah. Like become a grandma at 27 years old with knitting needles while we watch TV. And- Tom, you have any secrets to share? Are you like knitting handcuffs or something like that? <laughs> well, I wish. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've, done, I've done willy warmers. I've done them for a few friends. Um, but, you know, honestly, I, I think a lot of it comes down to communication uh, between Lance and I. And also... Like one thing that we always do before we go to bed is um, we share our best and worst part of the day to, with each other. So, yeah. It, yeah. and it's just a way of being able to share something positive and share something that we wished would be better. And that's not necessarily about each other. That could be about anything in the day, but it is an opportunity to be able to <laughs> bring, you know, bring things up throughout the day. <laughs> Let me tell you that. Yeah. Uh, and also, we we always do our best to never go to bed or never go to sleep mad at each other. Oh, yeah. That's like a I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, you two are such an incredible representation, again, individually, of living life out loud, being proud of who you are, um, not taking any ish from anyone about who you are, and fighting for those whose voices aren't being heard. With that being said, in 10 years from now, what does living life out loud for our community look like? So the year is 2031. Tom is now a master crocheter. (laughs) He already is. Too late. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to Daily Diaries. Um, He's got his own Instagram page with tens of thousands of followers. But instead, I thought I'd give you a little bit of an update of a few things that I've been doing crochet-wise. Insane. it's you know there's so many different answers for this and so much of it has to do with with geography and politics it depends on where you live sadly you know uh safety and freedom for queer people depends on uh the laws that you live under and as much as i understand the power the political power and organizing power of lgbtq i think if we're being honest, most people on the planet probably fall more into a queue. Uh, you know, things aren't always a- as absolute as our brains feel comfortable uh, defining them. And, and I hope that we move towards a place where we're more comfortable understanding the gray area, because that's where I actually think uh, gender and sexuality is much more of a gray area than even LGBTQ would lead us to believe. And I think in doing that, uh, we'll relieve a lot of stress from young people who are trying to figure out which box they belong in. Now, mm-hmm. my big hope is that, you know, the places I receive the most incoming emails lately from Iran, some from places like Uganda in Africa, in Russia, in Chechnya. I mean, these are places where it's life and death. That's the price of being queer in these places. And so I put my effort into shining as bright a light as possible and sending whatever support uh, I can to places where it's deadly, legally deadly, to be a queer person. That I hope uh, we can start to see the end of in 10 years. And I think in those 10 years as well, figuring out a way that everyone that is part of the LGBTQ plus community lifts each other up 
and works together. And I think that's how we're going to be most powerful is working together. Um, because with lots of minorities working together, it allows for, you know, a majority of people. Yeah, I, I, I agree on that one. I, I think I do worry that we're entering a time that's much like you know, the kind of early 70s in like the queer rights movement, if we can call it that, where there was just great animosity between the different groups. I mean, there was a time when gay people and lesbians did not get along, at least in San Francisco, wouldn't even walk the same streets. I know it's important that as we investigate our, our differences, we keep our arms locked. And, and this is just practical. You know, we're already a minority. If we continue to subdivide and not have each other's backs, uh, our movement's in real trouble. Um, and, you know, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, to guarantee that the gains we've made are permanent. In fact, history tells us they're not. Very well said. Very, very well said. Thank you two so much for your time, your wisdom, your humor, your grace. We really appreciate all of it very, very much. And I do know, uh, Lance, you are working on new projects as always. And Tom, good luck. <laughs> you get well, your third Olympics, right? It'll be my fourth. I'm like the grand. Your fourth of the, you greedy little whore, you <laughs> four Olympics. I know, I know. It's terrible. Slap me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's fantastic, and we will be cheering for you stateside. Thank you very much. Thank you much. both again for joining us on Life Out Loud. Thank you. Thanks, LZ. I still can't believe Lance sent his assistant to get Tom's number the night they met. I mean, I don't know if that would have worked for me, but it worked for them, and that's all that matters, right? <laughs> it's like they found each other, they found love, and they're making it work. Speaking of making it work, thank you guys so much for making this work, this podcast, this chapter, this endeavor. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into it, and not just from me, but there's an entire incredible team at ABC that really worked hard to put so much of themselves into each and every episode. So if you enjoyed the episode with Lance and Tom or any of the other episodes from season one, please, please, please leave us a review subscribe tell your friends we want to share these stories with as many people as possible not just because we're proud of the work that we've done though we are but because we also believe that the stories can be helpful and they're worth sharing the entire point of this podcast isn't simply to have these episodes captured and then sitting on a shelf no these are living breathing stories that can inspire and encourage and uplift but only if people hear them, only if people share them. So I encourage you to subscribe, to leave a review, and to tell your family, your friends, even complete strangers in the grocery store if you got time in your hands. Because as many people that can hear the stories about our ups and downs, our joys, as well as some of our disappointments, the more people will better understand who we are as a community, and hopefully with that, a better understanding of the rights that we're seeking, which aren't special, just equal. Thank you guys so much. I love you. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings. Thanks to senior producers Tony Morrison and Robert Cepeda. What's up, boys? Associate producers are David Toledo and Madeline Wood. The executive producers of Life Out Loud are Eric Johnson and Liz Alessi. 
Special thanks to Mark Anthony Harris Gardner, John Haworth, Kieran McGurl, Elena Genovese Picard, Joel Lyons, Jonathan Fagg, Joyita Bizwas, and the Pride ABC and Own Television Stations Employee Resource Group. And a big shout out to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, Ali Yang, Hal Arenal Thiel, Brian Choi, and Stacia Dushisku. I'm LZ Granison. Girl, wasn't that good? 